Hi, friends. So unfortunately, uh, the Sunday that this message was given, we had some Wi-Fi problems, which means the live stream got cut and the sermon audio was not completely recorded. So I have decided to just re-record the whole thing. Uh, so it's going to sound a little different than it normally does, uh, unfortunately, but it is the best we can do. So this week we finished our After Easter series. Um, the previous week, we looked at Pentecost, and uh, I felt like we needed a little bit more time to talk about the Holy Spirit and, and what the Holy Spirit does and what the meaning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, is. And so uh, this week was Pentecost part two. Jesus said to his disciples shortly before he was taken away to be crucified, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So two weeks before now, we talked about the ascension, right, when Jesus went away, and then the week, the week after that, we looked at the moment when the counselor, also known as the Holy Spirit, arrived. And it's important for us to recognize how significant that moment of the outpouring of the Spirit is. That moment inaugurated a new age in history. Uh, ever since Jesus ascended, human beings have had access to the Holy Spirit of God in a way that was not possible before. Uh, God's Spirit can now take up residence in us. Now, what I want to do in this message is try to answer some of the questions that arise from what I just said. Questions like, how do I know if the Holy Spirit is living in me? What exactly does the Holy Spirit do? How do I tell what is the Holy Spirit and what isn't? Those are important questions. When it comes to the question of how do I know if the Holy Spirit is living in me, some people very simply answer that by saying, well, the sign that the Holy Spirit has filled you is you speak in tongues. That's what happened at the first Pentecost, so that's what will happen to you if the Spirit comes to you. But if you were here for the first part of the Pentecost message, you know that I don't agree with that. Speaking in tongues can be a sign of the Holy Spirit, but the Apostle Paul is clear that not everyone has the gift of speaking in tongues. So that cannot be an essential sign of the Holy Spirit. Some people think that the sign that the Holy Spirit has filled you is a really intense emotional experience, one that might involve crying or fits of laughter or waves of joy. When some people use the term spirit-filled church, what they mean is that is a church where there are consistent wild displays of emotion. Now, when the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, that does often lead to intense emotional experiences. I don't want to deny that. And those experiences can be extremely valuable. But it's important to recognize that they don't happen all the time. And in the Bible, when it defines what the Holy Spirit's main goals are, emotional ecstasy is not one of them. So where can we get some answers about what the Holy Spirit does? Well, Jesus taught about that. So let's look at what he said. Um, John 14, 
starting in verse 25. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there yourself. John 14, verse 25. Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So we'll keep reading scripture later, but I want to pause here. Now, as I go through our passages today, I'm going to make a list of the things that the Holy Spirit does. These are the functions of the Holy Spirit that Jesus himself emphasized. So they must be high on the Holy Spirit's list of priorities. Is it possible that the Holy Spirit will lead you to cry or laugh or fall on the floor or speak in tongues or be completely overwhelmed by the presence of God? Yes, all those things are possible, but all of that is secondary to this list that we're going to make today. So what does the Spirit do? Well, number one, the Spirit teaches us. I realize that might sound so vague and general that it's not even worth saying, but it is important. Jesus says he will teach you all things. The spirit-filled life is a life of continual learning. It's not a life of stagnation, okay? It's a life of growth, of acquiring knowledge, growing. And, you know, Jesus uh, said to the disciples when he said he will teach you all things, he was suggesting to the disciples, he was implying there is much that they do not currently know, right? But they are going to understand more even after he is no longer physically present with them because the spirit will continue teaching them. Recently, I spent some time with a friend who I hadn't seen in 12 years, a fellow Christ follower. And we were talking about things like you know, the passage of time and how some things stay the same, some things change. And he said, a while ago, I realized that about every five years, I look back on myself from five years prior, and I feel embarrassed. Like, I think, how could I have been that immature? Or how could I have thought that way back then? So when he was 20 years old, he was thinking that about his 15-year-old self. When he's 25, he's thinking about his 20-year-old 20, 20 self. When he was 30, thinking about it that way about his 25-year-old self. And he said, but about five years ago, I thought, you know what? I don't think that's going to happen to me five years from now. I feel like I've arrived. And then he said, but I was wrong. <laughs> and we laughed. And then we agreed that that experience is probably a good thing, right? Because it is a sign of continual growth. Uh, it's, it's a sign that the one who teaches all things, the Holy Spirit, is at work in us. And because of that, we are continually growing, maturing, uh, and changing. And uh, so if we look back on our past selves and our, we were shaking our heads, uh, you know, even though that's hard, <laughs> that can be a good thing. And it's, it can be a sign of a spirit-filled life. However, um, the pendulum can swing too far in the other direction. And hopefully uh, that is made clear by the 
what Jesus also says, okay? He doesn't just say that the spirit-filled life is one of learning and constant change, but he also says that something the Holy Spirit is going to do is remind you of what I already said, right? So that's number two, second thing the Spirit does. The Spirit reminds us of what Jesus has already said. Now, what does that mean for us today? What it means is that we have to pay close attention to the accounts of Jesus's life in the Bible. Um, when Jesus said those words to the disciples, the Spirit will remind you of everything I have taught. Well, if Jesus was right about that, then the gospel accounts are trustworthy, right? The reason that um, the disciples were able to remember everything as well as they did is because they had assistance from the Holy Spirit. They were recalling what Jesus had done and recalling it well um, because of his influence. So if we today want to know uh, what Jesus taught, then we have to anchor ourselves in those gospel accounts. The Holy Spirit will compel us to meditate on them, to, you know, reflect on them, um, to, to continually go back to them. And I really want to emphasize that because I, I see that sometimes people develop an idea of who Jesus is that is very disconnected from the gospel accounts. I remember once not too long ago, I heard someone say, you know, one thing's for sure, Jesus would never judge. And I could tell because of the context of the conversation that what that person meant was not, well, Jesus would never condemn someone, um, which, which I would agree with. Um, what, what, what this person meant was Jesus would never correct someone or Jesus would never rebuke someone or Jesus would never say, that's wrong. And I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, you can't read a page of the Gospels without re realizing that Jesus did a lot of correcting. He calls out stuff all over the place. Now, just to be clear, okay, Jesus said he did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. However, in that process of saving the world, Jesus does a lot of correcting, a lot of rebuking, a lot of calling things out. And you could say that that is a form of judgment, right? Discernment. Um, and so I think in the, in the case of this person, they had developed a idea of Jesus that was largely a projection of their own desires. It wasn't really something that was rooted in the gospel accounts. And it is so important for our idea of Jesus not just to be this unmoored thing that um, is, is, is just a projection of what we want or um, some sort of folklore that we're surrounded by, right? It should be rooted in the Gospels. If it, if it is a spirit-filled understanding, it's going to be one that's rooted in the Gospels. Okay, and then number three, third thing that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gives us peace. Jesus goes straight from saying that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to saying that he's going to give us peace because those two things go together. They're synonymous. As the Holy Spirit comes, peace comes as well. Now, it's important for us to notice that Jesus makes a clarification. I do not give to you as the world gives. Why does he say that? Because the peace that the world offers comes through things like 
money, status, physical health. But the peace that comes through the spirit is different. It is a peace that somehow transcends those things, transcends our circumstances, and gives us rest even when we don't have physical health, even when our bank account is empty, uh, even when we feel rejected by the world around us. When I think of this kind of peace, I'm reminded of a line from Julian of Norwich. This is a famous line. She said, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Julian was a 14th century Christ Christian mystic. And incidentally, her book is the oldest surviving book written by a woman in the English language. <clears throat> but anyway, um, you know, I realized that that line might sound trite, maybe like something that belongs in a Hallmark card. But when we understand the circumstances that Julian of Norwich lived in, it becomes very powerful. She lived during the Hundred Years' War between England and France. And that war started before she was born and it ended after she died. So her, her entire lifetime was a time of war. And there was a lot of famine because of the war. <clears throat> and on top of that, she was writing during an extremely severe pandemic, a pandemic that makes the one that we've been going through look like a cakewalk, the, bu the bubonic plague. Okay, it was devastating. And yet in the midst of all of that chaos, war, famine, disease, that was when she wrote those words, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. That ability to say that while being fully aware of the harshness of the world, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the kind of peace that the Spirit brings that is distinct from the world. <clears throat> and so that is what it means to be filled with the spirit. That is part of it, is to have access to that kind of peace that transcends circumstances. All right, let's keep reading in the text. Um, we're gonna skip ahead a couple chapters to John 16, starting in verse seven. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. All right, I don't know about you, but I find that section to be really tricky. Uh, the whole part from when he comes to the end hurts my brain. Um, it's hard to follow Jesus's train of thought. What is he saying? Well, if you, if you read commentaries, people have different answers to that question. And, you know, I looked at several different interpretations and only one of them felt to me like it was putting all the pieces together well. So here's the one that I think makes the most sense. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will work to convince people of three things. 
The first is of a particular sin. What, what sin is it? Well, he says, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. Okay, so the primary sin that the Holy Spirit helps people to recognize is that they have not believed in Jesus, and they need to. So, number four, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Spirit convinces us that we need to believe in Jesus. The conviction that we should believe in Jesus, that we should trust and follow him and recognize him as Lord, that conviction comes from something more than weighing the evidence. It doesn't just come from our upbringing. It doesn't just come from what other people tell us. Um, you know, if it did, then people would never convert if they grew up in a culture that, you know, was of a different religion, you know, but people do, right? Um, there is another factor at play, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. His voice is the voice that is always calling people to recognize Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our attention and our worship and our lives. And just to be clear, okay, I'm not trying to say there's no value in assessing the evidence. You might remember that on Easter, um, I tried to present some reasons to believe, you know, in the resurrection, uh, logical reasons, reasons from history, that sort of thing. I think there's a place for that. But the reality is when it comes to us believing, there's something more at work than just that kind of objective assessment, something more than our culture and our upbringing. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Why do so many people believe in Jesus? Um, a big part of it is because of what the Holy Spirit does. So that's number one, convicting, uh, convicting us that we need to believe. <clears throat> the second thing uh, it says is that the Spirit convicts us of righteousness. What does that mean? This is the part that I think is the most confusing. And I think what can help us get it is to remember that Jesus said this right before he was going to be arrested and crucified. And that means that the world is about to judge Jesus as unrighteous, as worthy of death, right? So what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit is going to convince people that Jesus is actually the righteous one, that he was in the right, not the people that sentenced him to death, okay? And Jesus says that this conviction that Jesus is righteous will be because he is going to the Father, now, why is that? Well, remember a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about Jesus ascending. That's what that is describing. Jesus going to the Father, he is ascending. And so what Jesus is saying is, I will be recognized as righteous because I will be risen from the dead and reigning in heaven alongside the Father. So the fact that Jesus will be ascended to the heavenly throne is proof that he is righteous. So number five is the spirit reveals that Jesus is the standard of righteousness. The spirit reveals that Jesus is the standard of righteousness. He is the one who is truly good. And then finally, Jesus says that the spirit convicts us of judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And what I believe Jesus is saying, if you're taking notes, number six is that the spirit convicts us of what's wrong with the world. 
spirit convicts us of what's wrong with the world. The spirit helps us to see that there are certain patterns of this world that are worthy of judgment, worthy of condemnation. And they are the same patterns that led Jesus to be crucified. You might remember we identified some of those patterns in our series on the cross. Uh, patterns like the pattern of shallow religion, uh, the pattern of seeking self-interest rather than justice, the pattern of resorting to violence. Jesus exposed those patterns because Jesus showed what happens when a blameless, righteous person enters the world. What happens? He gets killed. So the Holy Spirit helps us to recognize how messed up the world is. When we aren't filled with the Spirit, we just accept the patterns of this world. They feel natural to us, you know, like breathing. You know, of course we're all ruled by money and self-interest. Of course we only tell the truth if it benefits us. Of course we need to use violence. But when the Spirit fills us, we're bothered by the patterns of this world. We see them as worthy of judgment, worthy of turning from. <clears throat> All right, uh, let's look at one more section of scripture, picking up where we left off in verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Now, this is a little bit of a tangent, but isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't tell the disciples everything all at once? I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. There is more truth to reveal, but I know you're not ready for it yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to lead you into more truth. Now, I think that the Holy Spirit is, just like Jesus, also sensitive in how he guides us in the truth. Right? The Holy Spirit represents Jesus, draws us to Jesus. Jesus knows that we cannot hear all the truth all at once, so it would make sense that the Spirit would be the same way with us. You know, those of you who have kids, you know that you cannot reveal everything you know to your kids all at once. And in fact, at certain stages in your kids' development, it is definitely not appropriate to talk to them about certain things. If you tell them certain things at certain ages, it can be traumatic, right? And if you are a loving parent, you're going to be sensitive about what you reveal and when. And what this suggests to us here is that God is the same way with us. And uh, what I want us to realize is that it's probably wise for us to recognize that if God is that way with us, we may need to be that with each other too, right? We have to be sensitive to the fact that all of us are on our own journey with God, and we are a community where we're not all in the same place, same stage in that journey. And so we have to be sensitive to that. You know, if somebody has just come to Christ, I am not going to 
burden them by talking about, you know, all of the theological controversies that are currently going on or, um, you know, by the controversies, the histories of the controversies throughout the church and that sort of thing, that they're, they're probably not ready for that yet. A, a time will likely come where it's appropriate to talk about that, but, you know, not right away. And we all need to be careful not to give people more than they can bear, okay? So if God doesn't give us more than we can bear in terms of how much he reveals to us at any given time, uh, we should do the same with each other. But anyway, okay, getting back to what the Spirit does. Two more things I want us to note. So number seven, the Spirit directs our attention to Jesus. Uh, some of the other points I've already made are, are saying this as well. Um, but Jesus reemphasizes that here. He says, the Spirit will bring glory to me. And... Uh, I think it's important for us to pay close attention to this because that that tells us the Holy Spirit does not emphasize himself. The Spirit is always about calling attention to Jesus. And one of the things that concerns me is that some of the churches that really emphasize being Spirit-filled are also places where there's not a ton of talk about Jesus, right? A church is truly spirit-filled if it is a church that is talking about Jesus, talking about what Jesus taught, uh, talking about his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. Those are the sorts of things that, that the Spirit calls our attention to because his work is to glorify Jesus. Okay. And then finally, number eight, the Spirit gives us a sense of intimacy with God. The Spirit gives us a sense of intimacy with God. Jesus says that all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said that the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Now, the language that's used there is the language of sharing possessions. And that's significant because in those days, sharing possessions was, it was the action associated with ideal friendship. You know, in those days, your friends were the people who said, what's mine is yours, and really meant it. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. What's mine is yours. The Spirit will give it to you. And what the Father has is mine. So really what the Father has is yours too. So one way of putting this is you have been invited into the loving relationship, the friendship, between the members of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit brings us into the experience of that divine love. All right, so we've identified eight things that the Spirit does. They aren't necessarily the only things the Spirit does, but these are the kinds of things that Jesus emphasized. Now, it's important for us to recognize, even if we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's voice is not the only voice that we hear, right? There's our own voice, which is sometimes in step with the Spirit and sometimes not. There's the voice of the, tradi the traditions <clears throat> that we've grown up with, you know, which again, sometimes in step with the Spirit, sometimes not. And there's also the voice of the enemy, and the enemy seeks to undermine the voice of the Spirit. 
right? Uh, there's the voice of our culture, which sometimes in line with the spirit, but often not. And to be filled with the spirit is to allow the spirit's voice to be dominant in that competition of voices. So that brings us to the question, okay, well, how do we know what the voice of the spirit is? <clears throat> well, to help us out, consider the list that we made today, those eight things. What is the voice of the spirit? It is the voice that challenges us to learn and grow and not be stagnant, right? What is the spirit's voice? It is the voice that calls us back to the gospels, that calls us to the scriptures. It's the voice that says, remember what Jesus said. The voice of the spirit is the voice that tells us no matter how bad things get, all shall be well. The voice of the spirit, that it's the voice that makes a big deal about Jesus. The voice that just keeps saying, isn't Jesus fascinating? Isn't Jesus beautiful? Isn't he holy? Uh, isn't he worthy of our attention? The voice of the spirit is that voice that convicts us that Jesus is the standard of righteousness, not us. It's the voice that says, you belong to God, draw near to God. I believe that if we pay attention, we hear the spirit's voice speaking those things. And the more we listen, the more we follow the spirit's promptings, the more his voice rises to the surface and overpowers those competing voices. And as we follow that voice, we find ourselves growing in what Paul called the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And maybe as that happens, we'll even have an ecstatic emotional experience or two, or three, or four. So let's listen to the Spirit's voice.